John Glenn, Buzz Aldrin. It's no coincidence that many astronauts are former fighter pilots. After all, Frank after flying a high-performance jet aircraft, space travel almost seems like a logical extension. David Both groups are well-versed in managing risk, performing well under pressure, and working in uncertain conditions. And both astronauts and fighter pilots alike have a reverent outlook on life and our planet, as we will learn from our guest on this episode of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Scott Tingle. Before I left, I had a good appreciation. You know, I'd been up fairly high altitude, 50,000 feet, and we'd flown off the ship. We've done a lot of extreme things, and we've seen the wonder of our beautiful world, the people in all these different countries, the uh, the foods, the entertainment. I mean, it was, it's just fantastic. And so I left knowing absolutely, without doubt, that we lived on an absolute beautiful spaceship called Earth. And when I got up to space, it reaffirmed all of that from a bigger perspective. Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 29. Today, Jello will interview astronaut Scott Maker Tingle and learn about flight ops as he is a current active duty astronaut. He is indeed. What's going on there, Sunshine? Not much, Jello. How have you been? I've been good. But do you know what we forgot to talk about on the last episode? What did we forget? The Miramar Air Show. Oh, You forgot dude. because you weren't there. Eh, there's my excuse. What's yours? Well, <laughs> I was talking about Orlando, I guess. <laughs> I get that. But it was a great show. We met a few listeners, gave out a little dunk, and just generally had a good time. Fantastic. And they do some kind of an amphibious group demo, right? How is yeah, that? the MAGTAF demo. That? Just like we talked about in episode 26, it's the Marine Air Ground Task Force. Yeah. Put on a pretty good show this year. Not as good as I remember in the past, but maybe it was just me being busy with all the different people I was visiting and thinking about the podcast. But anyway, great time that weekend, and sorry we didn't talk about it on the last episode. Anyway, what's new in your world? So I actually had a chance to uh, work with some Hollywood folks. So as it turned out, the uh, Top Gun 2, that's uh, being called Top Gun Maverick, the, the filming crew came back to San Diego They've been doing some fantastic work. I had the opportunity to look at some of the sets, and I am absolutely stunned by the attention to detail. The set designers, the art director, got to meet with her, that they've put into the set. And while I don't want to give away any details, trust me, it's going to be a crowd pleaser. Okay. Well, some of our listeners and viewers might be aware of this already. Mm -hmm. A certain person might have been out sleuthing around, maybe doing a little yes. Facebook Live while you were out making noise. And Yeah, I helped to provide a noisy backdrop. Okay, well, say no more. I guess we better wait till it comes out about a year from now. You think it'll be any good? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I really feel it's going to be epic. I think it's going to be the same magnitude as uh, 1986 Top Gun 1. All right, well, we'll look forward to that. Okay, I want to mention we received some feedback since you and I were last together, Sunshine, okay. on what our assessment was of, quote, world-famous squadrons. Yeah. So one gentleman wrote and said that if you were in a movie, your squadron was featured in a movie, okay. then that made you world-famous. And another fellow wrote and said that if you have done an around-the-world cruise, yes. that makes you, quote-unquote, world-famous. Oh. But by my estimation, that would mean just about every squadron, because at some point or another, a lot of carriers and squadrons make their way from one port to the other and go around the world, or just about. So anyway, that's what we got from last week. Okay. I also want to mention that we had a very good week on Patreon. We have four new division leads, Jacob Meltzer, Jordan McVeigh, Jesse Lotzbeck, and Chris Wanaka. John Jacob Jingleheimer-Schmidt. And we also have a new strike lead, Gilbert Madrid. Gilbert. And so we welcome all them into our Patreon family, and I know they're enjoying access to exclusive content, which is pretty cool. And here's one more thing, Sunshine. We added a new level on Patreon. And what it's is that level? The Mission Commander. Mission Commander. It's at the $50 level. Oh, wow. Okay. And it gets you everything up to that level and then a t-shirt. And if you want, if you're interested, a 20 or maybe 30 minute phone call with either me or possibly you. Offer my services? <laughs> sure. So, yep. That's what's going on on Patreon. So I guess before we get into the episode, are there any questions we need to answer? 
You know what? We do. We always do. We have both emails and phone calls. But because this is a longer interview, why don't we go ahead and jump straight into Fair it? Enough. And yeah. we will look for a yeah. future opportunity to do listener questions. So without any further ado, then, let's go to the interview with United States Navy Captain and NASA astronaut Scott Tingle. He's going to talk about how fighter pilots and astronauts are a lot alike and what it's like to be up in space. All right. Today, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas, and I am joined by astronaut, Navy captain, former F-18 pilot, and former roommate of yours truly from 2003 on the USS Nimitz, Captain Scott Tingle. Maker, welcome to the show, bud. Thanks, Jello. It's really good to see you. It's been a while. It has been a while. Good to catch up with you. Yeah, well, you don't look like you've aged at all, so I don't, we'll have to talk about what space does to... <laughs> Less hair. I've got your hair. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, it's been a long time. How you doing, bud? I'm doing great. I'm hanging in there. Uh, life is uh, good. Uh, I'm getting some workout time in, which is good, a lot more than uh, when we were back in VFA 97. Mm -hmm. So uh, feeling healthy and uh, ready to rock and roll. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today, as well as NASA for authorizing this. And so you know the drill. We're going to start a little bit with your background here. We're going to talk about space, and we'll wrap it up with the future. So tell the listener, if you would, please, where you're from, what your military career was like, and where you are now. Sure. I uh, grew up in a small town of uh, Randolph, Massachusetts. Uh, graduated from a vocational technical high school there. Knew I was going to have a hard time in uh, getting through college, so I joined the Navy Reserve in, as an enlisted guy. All right. I spent uh, six years doing that while I was working my way all the way through uh, undergrad in mechanical engineering at UMass Dartmouth and then went to Purdue uh, for mechanical engineering with especially in fluid mechanics and propulsion and uh, graduated there and uh, with a master's degree in 1988. Worked as an engineer for three years out at the Aerospace Corporation in El Segundo and then decided it was time to go on active duty. Went on active duty as an officer and uh, got my wings in 1993 and worked uh, operationally, you know, with great folks like you for <laughs> the you. next uh, 15 or uh, 20 years. Went to test pilot school and then uh, was fortunate enough to be selected to the 2009 astronaut class. Awesome. And you've had a flight. And I've had a flight. I just got back. I spent 168 days up on the International Space Station. We launched out of Russia. We landed in Russia. And everything else was uh, here in Europe and Wow. Um, Japan. Okay. And you're still technically on active duty. I'm still on active duty. Okay. But yes. you belong to NASA, essentially? Well, you know, I'm still on uh, active duty, uh, but there's a, a memorandum of agreement, you know, that between uh, NASA and the military. So they trade funds and do whatever they got to do. But NASA owns me and uh, all the scheduling and Okay. And will they, I guess I'm getting ahead for the future here, but will they always own you or is there a chance you could go back and go do Navy stuff again? Well, at this point, I'm at 28 years as an officer. I only got two years left. And, uh, you know, I was actually looking at, uh, at, you know, future and just looking at all the options. And uh, there are several uh, leadership jobs back in the Navy that were very interesting, uh, but they all need three or four years. Uh -huh. And uh, unless I get a congressional waiver, I can't really uh, compete for those jobs. And, and right now we've got a lot of great folks in the military t uh, that are, are ready and willing and and should be pushed into those, uh, those higher leadership jobs uh, for okay. that. So I will probably end up retiring. Uh, about a year from now from, okay. from the military and then transition to, right. to GS. Keep yeah. doing what you're doing probably over here. All right. So my next question is a little bit obvious because what little boy, frankly, isn't interested in being a fireman or an astronaut or something <laughs> glorious? Uh, when did it start for you? And at what point in your career did it become no more than just a desire and maybe a potential reality? You know, it, that's, a, that's an interesting question because it's, it's never a straight line and it's, it's never, oh, I just got over that challenge. I know I can make it. Right. To this day, I'm sitting in this chair, and I don't know if I, I can do it, <laughs> you know, so having just done it. And so there's, there's always challenges. But the light bulb went on, or the seed was planted, and I was about four years old. Neil Armstrong landed on the moon, captured all of our attention, and, yeah. uh, and that just always stayed with me. Uh, as I got older, I really liked working with systems specifically motorcycles and cars and things like that, and uh, and got really good at it and uh, decided that, uh, you know, kind of an operational flavor, technical flavor was, was very interesting. And uh, and as I got older, specifically uh, in high school, I, I knew that the Navy was my probable destination, trying to be a, obviously a, a, an aircraft carrier aviator and, mm -hmm. a, you know, a strike fighter pilot. And so, uh, you know, I just kind of marched towards that a little bit at a time and, 
And, you know, I was looking at different options. I wasn't in a big hurry, so I came in actually a few years later in life than most people. Uh, yeah, after do. a master's and three years in industry, you were probably in your later 20s. I was. I, in fact, I get selected, I think, at 26, and you have to be commissioned before you're 27. So, wow. I think yeah. it's a little older now, by the way. But anyway. Yeah, it's, well, it's well, probably they're good. needing pilots. So. Probably get some more, some wiser uh, people in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, they took us, right? So, yeah, they took anyway. us. All right. Exactly. So, and then some point in your career, of course, TPS is almost a requirement. We've talked about that on this show before, mm-hmm. but uh, was that in your mind, hey, I want to go to point B, so I better go through point A, or did you just say test pilot school sounds fun and let's see what happens after that? Yeah, so all the way through college, you know, every time they had a NASA selection, I was always the guy that would dial 411, you know, because we didn't have the internet or the phone books and all that <laughs> stuff, and, and I would just, hey, I'm looking for Ken Reitler because he was on the new the new selection list, and I would go through about three or four numbers and I'd always get one or two and I would just ask him hey how'd you do it you know thanks for answering the questions and all this stuff and and it was a big motivator and and inspiration for me and I, I just kept banking that knowledge and banking that knowledge and so, you know, I just got to the, to the point where I had to I had to look at several career paths. I knew I wanted to be an astronaut, and so there were several ways I could go. I could go the science route, PhD. I could go the flying route and try to get to test pilot school. I could go the commercial you know, road and, and just try to be a good industry engineer type uh, person. And when I looked at it, the most interesting to me and the most challenging with the most barriers that, that you could identify was the naval aviation road because there's so many points for failure that the probability of even getting to the end of actually making it through test pilot school or getting through your first carrier deployment or, you know, you know it's not everybody makes it. All right. And so um, I looked at that and I was like, you know, even if I don't get to the end point, I'm going to like this career. So that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I did. And, cool. and, and it's been like that step by step the whole way through the career. Well, I remember in flight school, they told us, you know, you can't look at everything you're about to do in one big view because you'll be overwhelmed. But right. how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, sounds like you did that. So tell us briefly about the application process. I mean, Recky introduced us to the idea that there are a lot of applicants and it's kind of a long shot. And you just touched on it, too. You did a lot of research reaching out to folks, but how did it go with the application and then the selection process itself? So, you know, way back in the day, the astronaut corps was made up predominantly of military folks, or at least folks with military background. You know, Neil Armstrong was previous military, but was a civilian when uh, when they selected him. As we moved further into the program, it got the military became less and less of a percentage. And, and right now, I think we're probably around 25 or 30 percent on the pilot or the air crew side, let mm-hmm. me say that. And uh, and the vehicles we're designing right now actually don't require a pilot to, to command or to pilot um, for that. But they do require training and, and specific skill sets and, and all those kinds of things. So what happened when I applied to what is happening right now and what might happen in the future could be vastly different processes. So just keep that in mind for everybody that's aspiring to be a, be an astronaut out there. But so when this last class that was selected, there were about 18,000 applications and they broke them down into uh, qualified and highly qualified and not qualified uh, for that. 18,000, hold on, let me interrupt. How many were they planning to select? They were going to interview 200 to select 14. <laughs> wow. Okay. So you have a one in a thousand. That's right. Worse. Okay. However, anyway. um, if you look at the at the history, if you look at Air Force and Navy and Army, they always seem to select one or two from each service. So one out of two hundred is a more likely answer for, or one out of, you know, however many Navy applicants there are. Let's say this is typically between two hundred and four hundred, depending on you know what the state of the Navy is. Those odds are a little bit better, even though they're extremely small. But they're a little bit better than one out of you know, 18,000. Right. So you just got to keep on applying. You, you should try to get to know folks, you know, in the core. That always helps because if people can vouch for your reputation and your attitude and your ability to fit in and work with a team, that always helps get you into the interview. Once you're into the interview, it's all you. There's sure. nothing anybody can do because it's, it's you and your projection and, and how your motivation comes through and what your interests are. But the uh, the big thing is is just be honest on the application and and you know you don't have to try to to fluff it up. If you're qualified, you're qualified. Right. 
And if you're a naval aviator or an Air Force uh, fighter pilot or, you know, Army, uh, you know, helicopter test pilot, you're you're probably qualified already. A graduate degree really helps. If you're not uh, a pilot or uh, or an operator, then getting some operational experience somewhere would be huge helpful, you know, to you. Although not everybody has it, just you know, it just depends what the board wants at the time. Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's uh, it's it's pretty much. Um, you just go in and uh, and you try to try to show them who you are. You know, my my strategy when I interviewed was I'm not going to talk about work at all. I'm just going to talk about all the fun things I've done in my life. And and uh, we did that. We had some really good conversations. And uh, you know about my dog named Nordo. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> radio. Was, yeah, and that was uh, and that was fun. Okay. And, uh, I actually had a really good time. I it, it took me five applications to actually get an interview. Wow. So I've been applying for you know ten or twelve years and. Honestly, on the last time, I really didn't think I was going to get it. I was, you know, in my mid-40s, uh, you know, I was ready to come back. I had just screened for command and been assigned to or slated for VX-23 in Pax River. And, and I was feeling pretty good about the career. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to my grave knowing I tried as hard as I could try. There you go. And so I put the application in, and I got the phone call and came down and interviewed. And I had fun because I had no pressure on my sure. – Kara was carrying no pressure on it. And, uh, and it was really fun. I met some really uh, awesome people over at the gym, over at medical, up in the uh, sixth floor, and, and just working through the process. It was really fun. And, uh, and I, think, uh, I think that kind of came through. Who was on the interview panel? Ooh. Yeah, I remember Sonny Williams. I remember... No, Doc- I'm sorry. Yeah, not, not necessarily by name, but like oh. what types of people and how many? Was it a giant board? Oh, I gotcha. Inquiry um, almost. So the room is packed, okay. But the, the folks sitting at the table are typically the folks that have flown already. Okay. And uh, in fact, w- in fact, that's changed a little bit. Getting to fly could be a ten to twelve year process. Wow. You know, just because of the way the program runs. And so we we did on the last selection had a couple of folks that hadn't flown on the board just to participate and offer mm-hmm. their their insights or whatever but you typically have a bunch of operators you get the chief of the office or the deputy chief of the office you know to represent uh we also have uh, some human resources uh professionals uh, that sit in we have the psychologists sit in and a lot of times they won't be asking questions they'll just be sitting there and taking notes and you know Studying just be there it. to be part of the uh, part of the conversation sure. uh, after the after the fact there's, uh, I t- think, typically a flight surgeon in there, okay. you know, just talking about medical stuff. And, and then you mentioned you'd already been to some other places. So you don't just show up cold turkey. What, they're going to send you to medical to get checked out first to make sure? They typically do the interview in two uh, different phases. The first phase is uh, very minor medical stuff, if any at all. Mm-hmm. You typically just kind of see uh, meeting different people, doing some workouts at the gym, and just, you know, building relationships and, and just getting through that first interview. And that's where they neck it down. They take that 200 and they neck it down to, you know, maybe 20. And uh, because those next 20 are coming back for the second interview phase of the interview, and they're going to get the full workup on the medical. And okay. it's, uh, it's very expensive, and it's, it's very detailed. And sure. it's, it's, you know, if you can get that physical, even if you don't get selected, it's worth it just for that. It's a great physical. So at what point were you informed? And I'm guessing you remember that day. How, how did you feel when you were told you were selected? So I was in the uh, uh, sitting at my desk in my cubicle. I was the uh, class desk with a, the uh, systems engineer for PMA 201 as I was waiting to start my command track for okay. VX 23. And the phone rang, and uh, and I was just coming back from the bathroom, but I couldn't get to it in time. And I was like, hmm, I wonder who that was. And but had a Houston number on it, and I was like, uh oh. And then the email came out from a friend of mine who's also in the Navy that said, hey, I just got called. I'm in. And I, and I was like, well, congratulations. That's great. And I'm like, hmm, should I call him back? <laughs> Would that be too presumptuous? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so I decided to just sit there and wait. And uh, probably within 40 minutes, uh, the call came back again. And it was uh, Peggy Whitson and Steve Lindsay. And they said, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm, I'm doing great. And I'm expecting to hear, hey, thank you for coming down to interview. Sure, because your friend just made it. So <laughs> yeah, you figured, I figured he, I, he was the one. Know, okay. Exactly. And uh, and they're like, well, we've uh, we've all convened, and we'd like you to come down and, and join our team. And uh, I was I was literally speechless at the time because oh, I, I never expected it. And uh, and it was such a childhood dream that you know you you picture that that hoop that you're just trying to get into that right. you never thought you could do. Wow. And uh, I think in a choked up voice, I just said, hey, "My sea bag's packed. I'll be there tomorrow." <laughs> <laughs> and I have to think at this point, the Navy's ready to just give you whatever you need to go. So a move, a transfer, everything. And then, of course, the family. I mean, we probably could talk about this whole thing too. But mm-hmm. they know it's 
something you're pursuing, and so they've got to be flexible. But what happens? So then you show up down here, and you go straight into some training, or what happens next? Yeah, so actually getting here was was kind of uh, kind of um, a good uh, predictor of what we would see in the in the future. And okay. you know, just like being a fighter pilot on the front line, schedules are always changing. They're always being rewritten, and there's always somebody that wants to optimize for something different. And so you're constantly in that churn. And as a front line operator, you don't always have the input to stop the cycle before it gets too crazy, and you just have to respond. And uh, so. You know, they gave us, uh, I think, two weeks to move. So I had to sell a house, wow. get my kids out of, you know, mm-hmm. deprogrammed from school and, and start moving out and had to find a house and had to had to close on it and, uh, and and get here. And then on the drive out here, I was on the phone the whole way trying to close on my house. I was like, look, if they can't close, the deal's off. I need them to close in under, you know, it was like right. 20 days or something. It was something really fast. And everybody was really jumping through their butt to make it happen. We did it. And it, and it worked out great. Cool. And then uh, on the road trip over, we were coming through New Orleans, and you know the crazy road over there, you know, going through the middle of New Orleans. Uh, you know, I, I remember running over some guy's hubcap while I was on the phone, and things were just flying all over the, the place. And they were telling me, hey, we need you to get here a few days early because we're bumping up the training to go to survival school in Brunswick. <laughs> It's always something, like, isn't it? I'm looking at my watch, I'm looking at the calendar, my wife and I are looking at each other and going, is this how this works? <laughs> you know, this is crazy. It is a government organization, by the way. Let's not lose sight of it. It's a big of... bureaucracy, <laughs> and uh, and they got requirements, yeah. um, even though they're changing requirements. But uh, but they do have requirements, sure. and uh, and we're also happy to be in the program that we will pretty much do anything to make it work the way that they want it to work because sure. we don't want to be that guy, you know. Right. Now you touched on the land survival portion. I mean, so you had already done because of your F eighteen career land survival, water survival, flying. How did that prepare you for, if it did at all, for what you had to do with NASA? Yeah, it actually was a great preparation. Um, you know, I actually did uh, did land survival and water survival twice. I did it once as an enlisted uh, air crew guy and then, uh, again, as a pilot. And so every time I did it, I learned something new and I got more comfortable. I got a little body and uh, I don't have the propulsion in the water that, that some folks and, and I'm kind of dense, so I sink. And, uh, and so I knew that about myself. And so I was already learning how to compensate and figuring out what I was going to do with the systems and the equipment that they had to uh, to be able to get through it and I ended up getting through it it, it was really easy it wasn't bad at all no. and it was a really good refresher for you know um, to uh, to be able to uh, to go through all of the that training and and actually have fun and not worry about you know all the things that we worried about when we went through it the first time and the other thing is you know we were able to help some of those folks that had never seen that stuff before right and then you got to fly, right? So did you do some T-38 flying, and how much, and what was kind of the point of that, just to keep you proficient? Yes, and the uh, the piloting skills, you know, we got a squadron of T-38s out at Ellington, and uh, and we're tagged with getting 45 hours a quarter for a front seater. The back seaters get, I think, 12 hours a quarter, something okay. like that. And they call it space flight readiness training, or SFRT, but really what it is is CRM. Crew resource management. Crew resource management, as okay. we know it in every other mm-hmm. community. And and so, you know, we practice that. And there's a lot of folks that don't have any operational experience. You know, maybe they were a doctor, or which is really good experience if you're in an emergency room, sure. right? I mean, that's great experience. But talking on the radio and making decisions that can actually kill you or, or save you, mm-hmm. you know, even, you know, T-38 is kind of a, you know, small airplane. But it's pretty cool to go in there and actually build those relationships with the people that we're flying with and uh, and just get away from the desk and be operational. Yeah, for sure. And what type of missions would you fly? I mean, not the old day BFM, I'm guessing, or dropping bombs, but yeah. would you just go on cross countries or what would you do? Pretty much. Uh, you know, we it would be great if we could do some, a little more tactical training, but mm-hmm. the, the visibility, because it's such a, a very political program and the budget that keeps us running comes directly from Congress, you know, you know, and it funds NASA. And, uh, and the T-38s are always on the chopping block because it, they don't <laughs> understand. It's hard to explain the value of them, and right. it's hard to, to really couch the value. You know, in the military, we have training and readiness. So we kind of know where we are on the readiness curves, and it's not perfect, and it's kind of a pain, but it really helps make uh, long-term decisions and short-term decisions for commanders of squadrons and overall logistics and things like that. But And we kind of don't have that here, so it's hard to tell everybody how important that is. So what we can't risk is having an accident. 
Mm-hmm. So to, to minimize that the accident, we kind of, you know, it's this whole survivability thing. We just kind of reduce our exposure to the severely extreme environments. So, you know, we can go out to the area and do some aero. We can do some form. We can do some formation aero and things like that. But but no air to air, no air to, no air to ground, no low mm-hmm. levels. And uh, and it's pretty oh, much bad. 99% of the flying is uh, is air nav, mm-hmm. you know, going somewhere and, and practicing, talking on the radio, navigating, getting the gear down, do landings. Sure, you know, which, like again, that. for people who don't have the background, you have have never done so that's good training but that leads me to wonder i mean why historically do you think so many astronauts at least early in the program do come from the fighter pilot community i mean we've got you currently and i'm sure others but even from the beginning you got what john glenn jack swaggart um gene cernan i believe there's probably a ton more but we, we seem to pull from the fighter pilot ranks do you think there's a rhyme or reason to that I do. And I think there's three pillars that kind of go along with that. And the first is just the mechanical side. You know, we're using robotic arms. We're operating a spacesuit when we're doing, you know, spacewalks. We're operating extreme, you know, complex systems of systems, you know, while we're in space and in, and in training. And we're used to doing that as an, in an airplane. The uh, the other side is the uh, the decision making as a fighter pilot. You know, uh, people don't realize it, but when you're at uh, at the South Cap at uh, in Fallon and you know the bad guys are out there and you got to get to the target, and you've got four or eight or twelve airplanes with you, mm-hmm. you got to make some decisions. Most people in the technical communities are use, uh, they like to lead from the known known box which is really not leadership. It's just if-then-else you right. know, type, of, uh, type of thinking. The known unknown box is really kind of where middle management comes in. It's like, well, i got some, I got to make a decision here, but I'll do a little research, and I know I don't know it, so we're going we're gonna to kind of go in a direction to avoid or, or just go right through the, uh, the challenge. But the fighter pilot operates in the unknown unknown box almost every second of every day, and we're constantly processing information Speedy, speedy, speedy. And we know that, you know, we don't have time to wait to figure out if some of these unknown unknowns are going to identify themselves. We have to make decisions. And we also know that the decision I make right now might not be a great decision. And I got to be ready to change that decision or to abort or bug out or or whatever it is that we do. And so by the time you get done with, uh, you know, 10 years in fighter aviation, your brain's wired. You got the neuron paths built. and, And that's just how we think. And then you fast forward and you take a fighter pilot and you send it to test pilot school, which is, the, you know, the most awesome applied engineering class you could ever get. And now you're training a guy to actually speak engineering as a user. So you're connecting users to engineering. Mm-hmm. And if you're a fighter pilot and you've been out and you've been, you've been dropping bombs, you've been shooting down the bad guys, and you've been training with all your buddies, you've already got all of the skills you need and just apply them into, into an engineering avenue uh, and then operate the spacecraft or whatever system that you're that you're using. Now, I'm not saying that other folks can't do it. They can build that that those same things. But but I think the fighter pilot. That's what the fighter pilot brings. And if you talk about uh, Navy and Air Force and some of the other folks, you also get the added, depending on how long they've been in and what their what their ground jobs were, you get the added benefit of um, very experienced leadership. Right. And uh, which which really helps the uh, the community. And they're accustomed to command and control and organization and exactly policies, That's schedules, right. et cetera. Exactly. Awesome. All right, great answer. So let's get back to your track, though. At what point did you find out that you were on a mission, and how long between when you found that out and when you actually went? <laughs> Do you remember? Yeah. So I got here in 2009, and we went through two years of ASCAN training. And then what is ASCAN? Sorry. It's an uh, astronaut candidate. It's okay. like boot camp for astronauts. Sure, okay. You know, it's just two years of all your basic systems, foundational knowledge that you need for the community. Okay. And uh, it was pretty cool. Um, and then, then they started assigning people. But, you know, when you look at the slots available, it comes down to about one person, maybe one and a half a year average. And when you're talking a class of 12 or 14, you can see how long that would go on. Sure. And so, you never know where it's going to go, and some folks were more worried about it. I wasn't overly worried about it, um, but I, um, but I was trying to have as much fun as I could. Uh, but you, it does get boring, you know, because you know they're not really looking to give you too much in in leadership duties. It, it's changed, by the way, now because because they need it. Need it. That's a, a different discussion. But it was in 2015. Um, I was just at came went to the standard yeah, Monday morning meeting we call it here, mm-hmm. and uh, our boss came in and said. Hey, um, we're going to make a flight assignment this morning. 
And and I was like, well, it's not me again because usually they they pre uh, preload it because you know it's possible that somebody might say I can't do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because right. it's too soon or something's going on medically or you know family wise or whatever. Um, but they looked at me and they said, hey, we're assigning Maker to Expedition, you know, fifty three. And totally surprised me. I was the first. They tried this out. I was the first guy they tried this on. But he t- totally caught me off guard. And uh, to this day, he laughs at me. He says, "You should have seen your face." <laughs> but it's yeah. a welcome surprise. Yeah, well, because you knew at that point it was no longer theoretical. It was real. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So tell absolutely. us about your mission. I mean, by then the space shuttle was long gone. Right. And so you launched and recovered from a different country. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so by the time we actually got to the mission, uh, we were the schedules had changed and crews had changed a, a couple of two or three times, and and I was actually on Expedition Fifty Four, and I was in the Soyuz MS Zero uh, Seven vehicle. I had a Russian commander and a Japanese uh, uh, right seater. I was in the left seat as a flight engineer one, and we trained for nearly two years. The last seven months, I got switched from the right seat to the left seat and had to really bunker down as hard as I could. It was it was worse than grad school. It, mm. it was it was just incredible i had uh, my op tempo was in russia for 230 days a year you know basically you know average for two years and um anyway uh yeah launching from kazakhstan was uh, incredible uh we had the family there uh which was which was cool you climb into the rocket and in the Soyuz, you sit in the uh, in the fetal position. So you, you you get in the suit. You're in the suit for probably about ten hours, you know, because you start early sure. and you do all your systems checks and mm-hmm. you know. And you're like, well, if I can, you know, we got diapers on, but you know, you're like, I don't I don't want to pee in my diaper yet. I've only been here for thirty <laughs> minutes. I got nine and a half more hours to go. But the nerves, I can imagine. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. But you know, we're so tired that it was just like, hey, if I wasn't doing a checklist, I was sound asleep. Wow. And uh, yeah, and just as was my commander and as was the uh, the right seater. Uh, so we go through all the systems checks, then we get there, and and they're counting down, and you hear it, and all of a sudden you, you hear a little bit of a rumble, and the, the rocket's moving a little bit sideways, and all of a sudden you're like, are we flying? And it's very smooth. I mean, it's a really smooth vehicle for launch, and I'm looking at the, the altimeter, and it's starting to roll up, you know, 600 feet, 700 feet. And I was like, holy smokes. And then the vibrations get a little higher frequency. You're picking up, and you can, you can really feel it picking up steam. And that's uh, kind of like um, when the second uh, stage burns out, you get thrown forward, kind of like the end of a cat shot sure. on the ship. And then when the third stage lights up, it's kind of like the beginning of the cat shot. <laughs> so it's kind of backwards, but that's about the force wow. that you feel. And it's, it's pretty cool. And then the, it's about eight and a half minutes up to low Earth orbit. And, uh, and you know, I, I remember going uphill and, and feeling that uh, feeling the second stage uh, shut down and the third stage starting up. And I looked over at my, uh, my Russian commander, who was also a, a MiG-29 pilot, and we looked at each other. And we were, we were laughing like little school children. Oh, we, were sure. just, you know, we were just having a blast. It was fun. I can't even imagine. So you're yeah. an F-18 pilot from the U.S., Mm-hmm. He's a MiG-29 Fulcrum pilot from Russia and then yeah. a Japanese guy. Yeah. Well, the three of you, I'm guessing, probably still are pretty tight. I mean, you work together pretty closely to prepare for that moment. Yeah, we are. We're, we're family. That's you awesome. Know, they, uh, they come over here with their family, and we, we try to have them over and, and vice versa. And, and uh, you know, it's, uh, we, we got a lot of hours uh, sitting really close to oh, each sure. other. <laughs> well, plus, I mean, you're, you're cut from the same cloth. You just come from different countries. And Absolutely. Different traditions and yep. et cetera. So, wow, that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So... Gosh, I, I mean, I don't even know what to ask you next. I, what, first off, were you along for the ride, or were you doing that fighter pilot stuff? Well, <laughs> you know, excuse the expression. Yeah, no, I was. Uh, you know, I'm always doing the fighter pilot stuff. I can be in the classroom, and I'm I'm trying to think three steps ahead and sure. trying to trying to figure out. Where but I mean, going like no kidding, monkey skills. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, monkey skills. Yeah. So it, it's. It's all automatic mostly, okay. and uh, but we do have to uh, um, give system commands. Sure, and uh, and and we do have controls inside the cockpit of the Soyuz, but uh, not for launch. You know, if if we're using controls on the launch, it's because we aborted and we've had a tertiary failure, and we're just trying to right the vehicle so when the chutes come out, it's not spinning too hard, or it's or it is spinning like it's supposed to be. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. So you get up into space, and then you don't stay on the Soyuz, right? I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, but uh, where do you end up spending all your time? Yeah, so we did a two-and-a-half-day rendezvous. So we had two-and-a-half days inside the Soyuz, wow. which was, which was uh, not bad, actually. We got to, I got to finally sleep, and after main engine cutoff, I was the, <laughs> my first, everybody asked what my first thought was after you, you were in space. I'm like, finally, I can go to sleep. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, all, we were tired. We uh-huh. were re- it's just a long day, you know, for, for nine minutes. 
But uh, after two and a half days, we docked to the International Space Station. We equalized pressure. We opened the hatch and uh, floated out and uh, gave my buddy Sasha Masurkin a big hug. Okay. He was up there waiting for me. Awesome. So then you get on the space station. You spend how long in space total? 168 days. Wow. That's what? Almost six months? Almost six, about five and a half months. Five and a half months. Yep. And so day by day, you aren't just up there as a tourist, of course. You are doing what? We're working our butts off. And, uh, you know, if anybody uh, in the Navy has been on a Comp 2X or a TISTA 2 and 3 or, or, a, a, or a JTFX, which is pretty much uh, where the air wing and ship teams are coming together, and you're generating sorties, you're doing combat ops with external... Um, well, combat uh, simulated ops combat and training. Combat simulated, sure. yeah, uh, ops. And these are uh, in workups for deployment. Exactly. And those schedules are really busy. You're, you're working a lot and you're right. not sleeping very much. But that's, that's the deployment on Space Station. You know, it's always a compressed schedule and uh, we're always over capacity because we're trying to show value and uh, be productive for the Space Station. It was designed a long time ago. And uh, to get the value out of it, we, we have to work harder, not always smarter. Sure. So what sorts um, of things did you do day to day? Day to day. So, you know, there's several areas that we could be tasked. We could do maintenance or we could do operations or we could do science. Okay. Or just living and hygiene sure. and, and things like that, depending on what uh, day it was, if we had a break or not. But uh, so operationally, you know, if we had an EVA coming up, we would spend the day, you know, maybe flushing the suits or, or looking at procedures or actually doing the EVA, which is a kind of a 12-hour revolution in itself. What anyway, is an EVA, sorry? Uh, spacewalk. Oh, okay. Extra vehicle activity. Uh, so that's for operations. Uh, for maintenance, you know, we could be pulling a box out of our air analyzer to, you know, to... to you know, kind of spruce up the, the operation there and, and make sure we had the right mixture of air and nitrogen or oxygen and nitrogen and, mm -hmm. you know, carbon monoxide and whatever, all the uh, other gases that we, we got up there. Or we could be doing science, uh, which is we're trying to ramp up. And uh, when we were up there, we beat 107 hours or so of, of actual crew utilization doing science, which was a record at the time. And I think they've recently uh, uh, beat that record. And I think they got 115 or, or something like that. But, but uh, at any given time, we got 200, 250 experiments going on up on the space station. Wow. And uh, they're absolutely fantastic. Some of the experiments are operational. So I got to control a robot in Munich, Germany. Uh, from, the, space. from space, <laughs> using an iPad for control uh, from the space station, and the the robot's name was Justin. It was a really cool, uh, <laughs> really cool experiment to do, and and we were simulating the things that we would be doing if we were up on the Gateway Station in cislunar orbit, controlling a robot on the moon's surface or yeah. or Mars, and uh, so that was it. Really, was relevant to our future in uh, human spaceflight. Uh, another experiment uh, I did was called B cell. It's bioluminescent uh, cells. Okay. And we had a, a test medium and we had a test substance, and we would combine the two. And uh, they were had luminescent cells uh, put in there. And so when you hit them with a spectrometer, you can actually see the effectiveness of how they're combining and what the effectiveness of the overall solution is going to be. And what that does is, is back on Earth, if we can prove this concept in space and try to replicate it on Earth, then that can reduce the time it takes to actually do a trial on a new medicine from two years down to two weeks. Wow. Yeah, so it would decrease costs and, uh, and get medicine faster, huh. uh, benefit the human race. Very cool. So let's talk little silly things that I always wonder but never know about astronauts. So connectivity, I mean, email, uh, Skype. Yeah, so, you know, you were in the Navy during the same times I, I yeah. was. My first deployment, we had no email. We had uh, snail mail that was always 30 to 40 days behind. I'm guessing you didn't even have that. Yeah, probably. That, yeah, <laughs> we didn't because we, we were in the Middle East. and, and No, I meant we on the space station. Oh, on the space station. <laughs> no, sorry. we didn't have that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, but on station, we have email, and it now it's downloads pretty much instantaneously, unless the servers oh. broke or something, and we sure. got to fix it. But that's, that's yeah, yeah, things break. We actually have uh, uh, an IP phone or voice over IP oh. phone, so I, I was able to call my family almost every day, wow. you know, assuming that we had a Tedris connection and mm -hmm. and everything was uh, was good. And I felt bad because every time I had a Tedris connection, I knew they were probably pulling a channel from one of the carriers we had, uh, <laughs> you know, on the, the, the phones that they yeah. used down there, uh, the POTS lines. But uh, anyway, um, we also had uh, once a week we had uh, family videos and, uh, you know, um, video conferences so we could I could see my dog. I could see the house. That's and, cool. You know, just kind of keep up the uh, the connectivity really makes it more connected experience for the family, which at the end of the day, is really helps us. 
because, I mean, you, you remember what it's like to go away and go oh, yeah. get deployed and, and work, you know, tactical ops for, you know, six to nine months, and, and then you come back all wrung out, and, and it's just hard for you to explain what's going on. But real time, this really helps, and it, and it helps the family understand when, hey, we got to delay two weeks, sorry, it's just going to, you know, it just it keeps the emotions down. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. How about some public relations stuff? Uh, Skyping with classrooms, I'm guessing, or yep, that's the uh, the other side of it is uh, is uh, outreach as well. Uh, God, hundreds of events. You know, probably do about three or four a week, mm-hmm. and they all go through the NASA for priority and you know and how they're how they get set up. But I was able to set uh, set a couple events up. One with my high school, and one with UMass Dartmouth, uh, and we had a combined event with Purdue because Drew Foistel, who was coming up after me, was from uh, Purdue as well. Uh, those were really cool events. Uh, the one at UMass, they actually invited my mom. I had no idea she was going to be there. And then they said, okay, we're going to give you a question. And we can't see. They can see us, but we can't see them. We can mm-hmm. only hear them. Okay. That's how they managed the bandwidth. And uh, the question was, you know, what's your favorite move? Could you show it to us, you know, in space? And uh, I caught me totally off guard. So I just flipped upside down like a bat and put my feet on the ceiling and hung there and <laughs> And then my mom came up and says, I did not give you permission to do that. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was pretty fun. Mom still has reach no matter where we are. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, tell us about, I don't know, how about food? I mean, uh, there's packaged meals, I guess, but yeah. uh, I don't know. Tell us something maybe we, won't, we don't think of. Yeah, so the food's come a long, long way. It's a thermally stabilized MRE-type food. And, okay. you know, we got beef steak. There's, there's, you know, spaghetti and meatballs. There's, you know, energy bars. You know, we've got some hydratable uh, food that, uh, you know, vegetables and uh, mm-hmm. things like that. And, uh, and it was fun. You know, I guess a funny story is right before I launched, you know, I was sitting in Star City. And I don't take to foreign food. I have to find things to eat for me, you know, or whatever. And if you remember from our deployment. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, I had one of these little cans of ready corn. And you just open the can, you heat it up, and you eat it, or you eat it cold. (laughs) Sure. And I was like, well, wouldn't hurt to have some of these on orbit. So, okay, can you get some of these? And and they said, great. And the amazing people that we have here at NASA that that really try to – they bend over backwards to take care of us. Uh I get up there, and uh, Joe Acaba, a really good friend of mine, astronaut, and he get up there before me – Holds up a bag and goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and there were like 40 cans of corn in there. And it's like, there's no way we're going to eat all this corn. Even <laughs> six of us, you know, and we had more corn. It was just absolutely incredible. Well, that is an effort, right? Because I forget the calculation, but is that every pound of payload so much thrust and it's it's yeah. it's not just you can't just bring up anything you want i mean yeah you can't no yeah. it's it's all it all has to be weighed and yeah. there's all an average cost per pound for sure how would you compare the food to the food we had on deployment in 2003 uh, i remember know, that getting old but maybe that's just the angst of being on a carrier so i don't know you know i i kind of the whole process was the same okay mm-hmm. i think in general when uh, after we hit the supply ship, the food that we had was was pretty good. And then towards the end, when things were getting dry, it was like, God, how many yeah. times can we eat this? You know, and <laughs> and and you're just eating to get calories because you're not you're not digging it very very much um, for that. And it's it's kind of the same up there, but but the food's really good, and and they they space it out so it's more flat, it's more even, mm-hmm. even though you're just you you know you're getting towards the end, and it's like, well, I just got to eat this one more time, I just got to eat this one more time. But there's such a variety, and and you know we trade food with the Japanese, we trade food with the Russians, and, you know, we literally spice it up uh, a little bit to to keep it interesting. (laughs) Pun intended. Yeah. All right. So at some point, they tell you it's time to come home, or maybe you know that from the beginning. What's the RTB like? The RTB is phenomenal. The first thing they do is they hit you with, like, a 40-hour (laughs) workday. Make sure you're tired so you can sleep again, right? Yeah, there's all kinds of things you got to do. Take blood, take urine, all that stuff. And then... uh, and they tell you to get five hours of sleep, and that supposedly resets your clock. And you know from fighter aviation that doesn't work. No. Um, so then uh, the morning of, you get up, you, you do your things, you, you get everything all set. You say goodbye, close the hatch, put your spacesuit on, and strap in. And, uh, you know, two hours later, you you hit the button. The timer starts. Boom. You, you undock. You separate. You look out the window. You can see the station just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. And then you feel a couple of burns, and the, the vehicle uh, uh, gets into position. You monitor the position to make sure that everything's going right. And then you you, you check the timing on the uh, the main burn so that you, you can get your retro burn in and, uh, and slow down from 17,000 miles per hour to, you know, 14,000 or 10,000 or whatever it is. And mm-hmm so that you can actually start coming down. Uh, and then uh, and so you get in a position, you're watching it, and 
you get the burn. The burn lasts for a couple of about three minutes. And, uh, and then you go through separation and it's like a two shotgun blast. Boom, boom. And you just see parts just disappearing from your spaceship and <laughs> cables are flapping out in the thing and you're like oh my god you know this is uh-huh. what's supposed to happen and and then because there's no air yet and it's things are just kind of you know oscillating with no damping and then uh, then you know you know you're going down and all of a sudden you just see this cable trough rip off and you're like uh-oh here we go and uh, then about you know 10 minutes later 15 minutes later you start seeing some sparks coming off the heat shield and and the external part of the spacecraft starts to burn and then you know, five, ten minutes after that, you're in the middle of a, the biggest, most brightest, hottest fire you've ever seen in your life. Wow. And it's uh, and that lasts for, I don't know, probably about five minutes or so. And then uh, then you, you've you've slowed down pretty good. And then you just kind of, you can feel, you know, the G level goes up to about four Gs or so. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and at that point, I, I quit looking at my uh, my checklist. And I um, started looking out the window. And then I saw the Gs start going back down again. I was like, okay, time to get busy. And then uh, I'm just watching it and, you know, changing the pages, watching the time. And right then, Anton, my commander, leans over and he goes, Maker, what time was the parachute supposed to come out? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, he has to work hard uh, to talk in English. I have to work really hard on talking Russian. Uh So sometimes the (laughs) tense of the words, you know, come out different than intended. And I was like, ah, darn it, the chute didn't come out. What are we going to do? You know, because there's no... It's just all automatic. It goes to the backup and all this other other junk. And I'm flipping through my checklist, and then I look at my uh, my little gouge card that you know, little sticky thing, just like fighter aviation. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, ah, oh, we still got two more minutes. And he goes, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Our blood pressure went back sure. down again. The chute opens, and then it's Mr. Toad's wild ride. Oh, you're, it's like it's like Dutch roll all over the place, and you're swinging, and your middle ear's all messed up, and and uh, it's just you know you're looking around, and you're like, I think I'm just going to look at my checklist for a little while, mm-hmm. and, and then it settles out, and then uh, that's just the drogue chute, and then the main chute comes out, and all over does it all over again, and then you're pretty stable, and you're coming down, and you're high fiving each other, and, and life is good, and then uh, right before landing, about a meter before touching down, and we touch down probably about 40, 50 miles an hour. Um, you get the uh, the soft landing thrusters fire, mm-hmm. and it's a big, huge, you know, four thrusters, six thrusters that just fire everything they got. It's cold gas, just enough to slow the to to ease up. You need, a, I think, a total dissipation of like sixteen Gs or whatever. So it makes it like, you know, eight and eight. Wow. And uh, and so you feel that, and then all of a sudden you hit the ground, and it's like having a helmet on, and then getting hit in the back of the head with a bat, and. Uh, uh, and then it just all stabilizes. You know, the, the commander cuts off the parachute. And mer- magnificently, we, we were straight up. So that was perfect there. And uh, and then you, you wait, and the ground crew, the Russian search and rescue crew, are mm-hmm. fantastic, just like our search and rescue. Cool. They, they are just the greatest uh, greatest patriots you've ever met in your life. And uh, and then you're just waiting. You're doing your systems work. And then the, you hear some knocking on the hatch. You know, you <laughs> knock back. The hatch opens, you get a blast of fresh air, you can smell the Kazakhstan desert, and you can smell uh, all the dirt and the grass and, and whatever else uh, is, came out there, a little bit of jet fuel from the, from the helicopters and, uh, and all that stuff. And, and then you, you get the handshake and you're home. Wow. So very cool. Well, we're just about out of time, so we're going to have to make these last few questions a lightning round. But, yeah. uh, so adjusting to what probably is not correctly called zero gravity, but then readjusting back to gravity. I mean, how, you spoke a little bit about the inner ear just now. How did you physiologically adapt to that, and what was it like being back on the ground after five and a half months in space? Yeah, so going up uh, was a, a very easy um, correction for me. I have a kind of a short, stocky body and a good G-tolerance and all that stuff, so I was I never really had to worry about it. Uh, the biggest thing was fluid shift, where the fluid just kind of goes up. Mm. You know, spreads more into your chest cavity and your head, and your legs get kind of skinny and stuff. But the um, um, the big thing with me is, uh, as soon as we had main engine cutoff, that my fluid started shifting, and I felt like I was flying upside down. And mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of folks might get a little sick or nauseous doing that, but for me, it was just like I'm just flying upside down, <laughs> no problem. And uh-huh. and and you know, after a day or two of being in orbit, it was fine. And by the time I actually got out and got on space station, I was I was steady. Cool. Yeah, it was uh, no problem. And then you go through the spine adjustment, where your spine actually elongates. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of got an aviator's back. It kind of got a little bit, a little bit of pain back there from sitting in ejection seats for sure. however many years. And and the uh, but up there, it, that my back felt wonderful. It was all stretched out, not compressed. I was like, wow, this is awesome. I want to stay. This is great. Um, coming back um, was a little harder. Um, I I didn't have any problem. 
I equate, uh, you know, they, they do tests in the in the tent after they pull you out to see if you can walk straight and make your way around an obstacle course. Nothing hard, but you know, when you're off balance, sure. I mean, it's 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 nearly impossible for a lot of people. Um, I managed to get through it fairly well, and what I was thinking the whole time when I did it was that, hey, this is like landing on the ship at night. My my inner ear is telling me that you know I'm sideways, but my vision is telling me I'm straight. So I I did what every good naval aviator would do and just disconnected my ear and I trusted my my vision you know the instruments and uh, and I just concentrated really hard and I was able to just walk and and it was all good there so the the, the strength was there the coordination was a little bit uh, you know, had to slow things down just a little bit and uh, but it was that analogous to uh, to fighter pilot stuff um, for that and then uh, you know we have a six and a half week recovery program that actually helps us as our our backs you know re- curvature starts to redevelop and the uh, and the uh, compression starts to happen again so so I'm glad you brought up the night trap because on a previous episode on night carrier landings our guest fish quoted an astronaut who said the hardest thing you'd ever done even including the space program was night traps um, would you agree with that statement I'd say I have two hardest things that I've ever done, and they're they're both equally as hard. Landing at night on the uh, on the ship consistently, right. you know, pitching deck and and all that stuff, and uh, and doing spacewalks. Spacewalks for me is very hard because the suit is uh, is a really hard fit, and you really got to work hard. It takes a lot of energy. It's probably a six to eight thousand calorie day when you're out there for six or seven hours, wow. and uh, and you really got to be careful. It's really dangerous. Yeah, I wish we had time to go into that. But how many walks did you end up doing? I ended up doing one. One, okay. That's yeah. still pr- pretty memorable, I'm guessing. Yeah. You know, Maker, sometimes when I'm asked to speak and I, I need a subject, I speak about perspective. And what I mean by that, and I know you understand this immediately, is when we walk up to get on the carrier, and this thing is 1,100 feet long and so many stories tall and displaces so many hundreds of thousands of tons, it looks enormous. Right. But then, as you know, when you and I are holding up at high altitude waiting to land, it looks like a dot. It's not so big. I have to wonder how your perspective of the world, the universe, humanity, everything, and realizing we don't have a lot of time, I apologize, but how did being in space affect you and your perspective of life? Yeah, so it was reaffirming, and I think that's a good word. Before I left, I had a good appreciation. You know, I'd been up fairly high altitude, 50,000 feet, and, uh, you know, we'd flown off the ship. We've done a lot of extreme things, and we, we've seen the wonder of our beautiful world you know, several times, uh, the people in all these different countries, the, uh, the foods, the entertainment. I mean, it was just, it's just fantastic. And so I left knowing absolutely without doubt that we lived on an absolute beautiful spaceship called earth. And when I get up to space, it reaffirmed all of that from a bigger perspective. You know, you can see all of the countries. I could see all our old stomping grounds. I could see the little notches out in the, on the Indian Ocean that came out from Pakistan where we updated our INSs. You know, uh-huh. all those little places. And it was, it was like reliving all of, all of our days on the ship all over again, except I could do it 10 times a day or 16 times a day, you know, as we, uh, as we pulled, uh, pulled the orbits. But, you know, when you see a hurricane, you actually see it day after day, and it's making its track. And you're like... That's that's a monster. Mm-hmm. That thing looks huge. And taking pictures and then talking to the folks on the ground who are talking to the weather service and helping out with that. Doing Earth observation, you know, looking at volcanoes, looking at the craters. You can actually see some of the fault lines. You can actually, you know, pick out craters and actually, you know, you're seeing a billion years of of, you know, transformation on, on our spaceship called Earth, right. you know, and, uh, and when you look at that uh, as uh, from a uh, from that perspective, it's reaffirming that uh, that we live in a beautiful on a beautiful planet. And uh, and it's very inspiring. Amen. And I wish more people would have that perspective, because I have to think you look down and think, what are they so up in arms about. I mean, all the petty grievances we have down here day in and day out. And I used to think the same thing on the carrier. And then, mm-hmm. of course, when you get home, you realize none of that mattered. And so <laughs> I think more people would do well to consider that there's a lot bigger universe out there than just our little spaceship. So That's right. well said. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. But before we go, we always have two final questions. What is the future for you? Hold. We already talked a little bit about it. But I guess from this point of view... Is there another 
space trip in your future that you know of? There could be. You know, we have commercial crew going up to the uh, uh, station. We're getting ready to test those vehicles. And, uh, you know, three years from now, four years from now, there may be an assignment there. Or we've got uh, the Gateway uh, station that we uh, we have in development. And our uh, SLS and Orion capsule uh, is going to be our, uh, our vehicle that's going to bring us back to the moon and to other deep space locations. Uh, there could be an assignment there. If not, then there's, uh, there's lots of uh, leadership and, and design work uh, that uh, with operator experience uh, that would really help out the program and, uh, and get some of our other folks that haven't flown, flown as well. And uh, either way, as you know, just like I was in the squadron, whether I do it or somebody else do it and I help them do it, it's uh, just as rewarding to me. So Excellent. Yeah, well said. So you're going to hang your hat here for a while, grow old with NASA, hopefully? Yeah, for now. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> All right. And then the last one is probably the most controversial thing we have to talk about all day there, Maker, Tingle. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is one of those, shall we say, adolescent uh, humorous type call signs, but what's what's the background on it? Was there ever anything else you were? And and how do your, tell me this one, how do your superiors handle this one? Because this one seems a little controversial, arguably. (laughs) Well, the, uh, you know, with a name, last name like Tingle, uh, you can imagine the various call signs that I've had over the over the years. Sure. And every time that I would get a call sign, and naval aviators specifically don't have much of an ad- imagination, and it all comes down to little childish things that make them giggle. Right. And so, so a various call sign would show up, and uh, and it would last for a week or two, and then the commander would come in and say, "Get that off the airplane! I'm going to get fired." <laughs> And so we went through, you know, four or five of those, and uh, and uh, the ready room just ended up settling on uh, Maker. Maker, all right. And do people hesitate calling you this in your current capacity, or is it accepted? So <laughs> NASA is no different from uh, other operational places, and uh, and and everybody knows me as Maker, and everybody talks to me as Maker, and, uh, and you're pretty much across the board. But uh, there's always an effort to keep things professional, business-like on that. And so they'll, they'll take my names, you know, or, or ask that we don't use it on certain, you know, venues, such as the schedule sure. that's, that everybody can see that goes up to the station and, mm-hmm. and things like that. And it's all in an effort to be professional. Of course. And do that. And so, quick story, everybody's calling me maker. We're halfway through the increment. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I'm, you know, they start calling Scott. And, you know, I'm just doing my work. I don't hear it. I'm not paying attention to it. And then one of my crewmates comes in and goes, Maker, they're calling you. Call me. Who, who, who's Scott? <laughs> and so, oh, yeah. That's me. <laughs> and so once I figured it out, I was like, oh, okay. And that yeah. was that was uh, another one of the cycles that, that uh, we were we were going through where um, I had to try to transition to Scott. And as for the, my last month or two on station, I was Scott. But as soon as the hatch opened, I think everybody forgot. And they're just calling me Maker. And that's fine with me. And, you know, sure. whatever. But uh, I just want to do what's best for the organization. And uh, and if they need the uh, the business-like um, professional, then, then that, that's great great. Uh, but then, you know, there's a lot of folks too. And, and I don't think uh, that, you know, some of our, you know, maybe the politicians or uh, executives or whatever, when you have a call sign or some kind of operational thing, there's a group of people that never lived that life, but kind of maybe would have liked to. Sure. And, and to be able to participate in those little nicknames and things mm-hmm. like that brings in and, and wear a flight jacket with patches on it, just brings them a little bit closer yeah. to that. And it, it kind of makes it uh, a little bit of a warm environment. And so, you know, I'm okay either way. You can call me Scott. You can call me Maker. Just yeah. don't call me late for dinner. <laughs> well, and frankly, I don't know that we should take ourselves too seriously. I mean, again, the world right. seems hell-bent on debating and arguing every little thing. But right. maybe, maybe everybody ought to have a call sign. Maybe we'd all get along a little better. <laughs> but Maker, well said, Jello. Thanks, man. Well, <laughs> on that note, we got to wrap it up. On behalf of the listener, I want to thank you for your 28 years of military service. And I want to... Wait, actually, you know what? In retrospect, forget it. I hate your guts. You've been, a f- <laughs> you've been an F-18 pilot. You've been to space. You're the man. Oh, boy. Nah, really. Thanks for your service. Thanks for sharing your time and experiences with us today. I know the listeners will eat this up. And good luck and God bless to you, man. And uh, I hope you get to go again. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Uh, same back to you, Jello, and uh, thanks for all the tactical training. It, uh, it really helped uh, overall, just in, in life, if not uh, on the battlefield. Well, that's what we do. Brothers in arms, we help each other out. So you bet. Thanks a bunch. Thank you, sir. All right, Sunshine, I don't know about you, but that makes me wish I'd thought harder about the space program. I know, right? I'm very jealous, and what a great story and very compelling. And I love the fact that Maker was prior enlisted. Yeah, that is cool. 
He was enlisted through college and then was commissioned after college. So then, and I understand that you two were roommates on the Nimitz, so career-wise you were contemporaries, but then he started a little later in life. Yeah, he started a little later in life and was just a little bit ahead of me. I was fresh out of Top Gun, and when we were both in VFA 97, I was the squadron training officer, whereas he was just a little bit senior to me than as a department head. Fair enough, and I know... uh, if people go online, they'll see the picture of his beautiful chrome dome there. Yeah, it's probably easier to deal with in space anyway. <laughs> I'd say low maintenance. But not everyone is blessed with the ability to have a good-looking chrome dome. Uh, true. So, Certainly so good I on maker. Uh, nor would I. Nor would I. I'd have to wear a hat all the time. So there were a couple acronyms maker throughout I want to go over. One of them was POTS. Do you remember what that stands for? I do. The plain old telephone system. Which I don't know why they would call it that. It's not like we're dragging some super long phone cord behind the carrier, (laughs) right? But tell us what is the POTS line and what are some subtleties of using it? Some of the subtleties are there are different access codes. So this is going to be satellite communications Mm -hmm. from a normal, seemingly normal looking, let's call it telephone in either a stateroom or in the ready room. And you have to make sure that you have the access code to get in to dial and to send a signal off the carrier. Right. Some of the caveats, though. Right. Like when I call you from the ship. Oh, the delay? Bingo. Oh, dude, that's epic. Yeah. So I wish I had a good example of this in that um, you can perceive the, the delay and it can actually trip you up in conversation. But it's just enough to be an annoying, but you can still effectively carry on a conversation. I'd say the delay is probably... A second and a half? Yeah, it's enough, like you said, to be an annoyance. But I have to admit, Sunshine, when my wife and I, girlfriend at the time, first started using the POTS line, we would have to say over. Over, out, out, over. (laughs) Yeah, there is a delay. And if you pause for effect in your speech, you know, they might think it's their turn. And then you start talking over each other and you get tripped up. So you just got to work through that. And then the other acronym was INS. Now, you and I know this so well, Sunshine, I didn't even think about it at the time until editing the interview later, but inertial navigation system. Absolutely. A lot of ships, mostly all aircraft have this. They do. Yeah, all th- I'm at ring laser gyros, so they're nice and small nowadays, and they can be on pretty much anything. And it's nice because the ship can navigate without the dependence on a signal, i.e. GPS. Well, these days, the GPS assists the INS, but what do we do? We put in a known starting point, and then those ring laser gyros move and tell us where we are, where we're going? Yeah, you had to put in an initial coordinate, a latitude and longitude. From there, it could figure out the rotational, the linear tangential rotation of the Earth, and therefore it could kind of orient itself, and it could tear or zero itself out. And then from there, if there are any accelerations in the ring laser gyros, which are wrapping around all three axes, then it would know that, hey, I'm moving in that direction. Dude, my eyes are crossed right now. (laughs) Dork squad, fall in. But to the point that Maker made in the interview, if you remember, he said he was up in space looking back down at the various geographic spots on Earth that we use for updates. Yeah, that was very cool. So before GPS, you would turn on the INS and put in the points, like you said, Mm -hmm. and the INS would have a rough idea of where it was. And then once you got airborne, using either the radar or the FLIR, what you could do is you could update your INS by mapping a very precise point, like the tip of a peninsula or the corner of a bridge or something. And with an update, you could then tell your INS more specifically and exactly where it is and tighten up any drift. But of course, what you lose in there is that your radar could have some various angle issues or your FLIR too. So garbage in, garbage out. Calibration, if you will. Absolutely. But yeah. GPS has more or less done away with all that. It's uh, Yeah, because you get continuous updates, if you will. And I think the mechanical INS or inertial navigation systems that had the mechanical gyros, they were more susceptible to drift, as we call it. Whereas the ring laser gyros, because they're based on frequency, as opposed to mechanical motion, they have less susceptibility to drift. Excellent. Okay. Well, any other thoughts on that interview with Maker, Space, NASA? No, I just love the interview. It went by in a flash. Didn't seem like an hour. Oh, for sure. And there was so much more I wanted to ask him. Just ran out of time. Well, his zookeeper was right there looking over my shoulder. (laughs) Was he? And she would only let us have so much time. And plus, he had somewhere else to be. You know, they got pretty full schedules. But yeah, he's a big deal. It was just great to see him and spend some time together. I mean, gosh, it's been. 15, 16 years or something. It's been a long time. And here's a guy that has so much going for him, so many people that look up to him, yet he seems so down to earth and so humble. Yep. Pun intended, right? I mean, I think he, like you or I, Sunshine, if we were lucky enough to be in the space program, would just feel blessed to be there. Amen. It wouldn't turn us into something or somebody we weren't already. You know, he's just who he is and he's happy to share it. So we were fortunate to have him come on the show today. 
Alrighty then, I guess we can wrap up this episode. I want to remind everyone that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of NASA, the Department of Defense, or its components. All right, Sunshine, I think next time we're going to see you, you'll be a civilian. That is true, and let me make one caveat, if you don't mind. All right. Sorry about this, folks at home. The ring laser gyro, I believe, measures phase shift, not frequency shift. So uh, we can uh, dork out sometime later, but I think I've already misspoke once, and I'm sure it'll happen no, that's again. that's good. I mean, we strive for accuracy on this show. That's why we exist. We want to give people who are interested in air combat and military aviation some authenticity and realism, and Lord knows they're not going to get that from Hollywood, even with you helping out there, Sunshine. So that's what we do here on the show, and we're glad to do it. Anyway, let's wrap this up. Sunshine, you enjoy your last few days on active duty? Sounds like a plan. Hey, Jello, what do we always say? Let's get out of here. See you. Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it.